We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Thank you all for being here. And for those of you that are online, we're grateful for you being there. Uh, we don't need to have this in the way, so we can move that. And uh, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 this evening. Acts chapter 9, and we're in verses 20 through 30. Once again, that's Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 30. And I've I've titled this different ways, but Paul's initial ministry, Paul's total transformation, um, his, uh, he's an entirely new person after his conversion. Um, but let's read uh, Acts 9, 20 through 30, and then I'll make some comments on this, uh, particularly surrounding the timeline as well, because there's some question about that. Bible says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now that might sound a little odd to you. Um, but if you just replace Christ with Messiah, it probably sound a little different. Immediately he preached the Messiah. That's really what Christ means in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus proving that this Jesus is the Christ, or he is the Messiah. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Tarsus in Cilicia to uh, get him back home again where he was, it would be familiar. So after his conversion and baptism, he spent some days with the disciples or Christians who lived at Damascus. It tells us in the early part there of verse of chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, roughly. Now let's set some timeline here kind of in our mind. We're going to try to put a, a number on this just to help us think through this. And the number I'm going to give might not be exactly correct. It might be off by a couple of years. But the calling of the Apostle Paul seems that it had to be between A.D. 32 and 35 on the road to Damascus. Now, if you have an earlier time or year for the crucifixion of Christ, maybe as early as 30 
or even a little earlier than that, then we might have to shift this back a little bit. In other words, there may be more time that passes in the book of Acts chapters 1 through 8 than what we realize. It's a little hard to get our, our hands around. It seems, that as, as we know, that the Lord was born sometime in the 4 to 6 B.C., which would put the crucifixion at, um, what would that put it at, uh, 27 28, somewhere in there. So it's not a, we're not exactly sure. If only people had paid attention and put some re- better records down, we would be in better shape. But uh, we uh, were dull to that whole situation. But let's say between 32 and 35 on a more traditional uh, timeline. Um, and so we'll just pick, pick a number 34 for the sake of having a single round number, 34 A.D., so he ministers, Paul does, at Damascus, spending initial, initially some days there with the Christians. He began preaching in the Jewish synagogues. Notice it says immediately. So we had seen that he had this encounter. He was several days without food. Uh, he got up uh, at Ananias's command. He was baptized, and uh, he was strengthened when he received food, verse 19, and then he spent the days with the disciples, and immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. Now that's quite a turnaround, isn't it? What a transformation. Paul began a preaching ministry there in the place where he was going to go and harass the people. And he must have had quite a testimony. And that might might have been his entree into these synagogues. He said, look, I was coming here to do this, but now I'm coming here to do something else. And uh, what a what a difference that would be. Now, his message, notice the character of his message, or the content, maybe we could say. He preached the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Now, I focused more on the Son of God side of it, but really we could say the combination of the Messiah and the Son of God together, that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible's Messiah, we realize, Paul says now, he actually is the Son of God. And that is how we explain the kind of enigmatic statements about how he's going to be exalted and yet how he's going to suffer. He's going to exaltation of God, but the suffering of man. And so he connects those two ideas together. He knew by experience that Jesus is the Son of God. He had met him on the road. He knew who it was that he was speaking to now. And he was able to correlate that with what he knew of the Hebrew Bible. He accepted all of that. When I say Hebrew Bible, by the way, I'm referring to the Old Testament. Okay, sometimes when you're speaking with a Jewish person, maybe better to say the Hebrew Bible because if you say the Old Testament, immediately old sounds bad. And they might think, oh, you're denigrating our our scriptures. Um, We're not. We're just saying it's the older of the two covenants or testaments, but you, you understand what I mean from their perspective. So we say the Hebrew Bible, another way to say the, the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. And um, so he knew very well that Hebrew scripture. And, uh, you know, here's Paul, you know, whereas the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus when he spoke about being equal with the Father, Paul now had shifted to a much different view. He agreed that Jesus was equal to the Father. Now, um, 
just listen to a couple of verses that talk about this and the, the kind of different responses. In John chapter 5, verse 17, um, John, or, uh, Jesus had healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember, there was that uh, legend that you know, the angel comes and stirs up the water, and if I get in first, then I'm going to be healed, and so on. And uh, Jesus healed this man. And um, in John, and of course, he healed him. What day of the week do you suppose it was without even looking? <laughs> Probably the Sabbath. And uh, yes, um, verse number nine. And that day was the Sabbath, like a, John had puts an afterthought. But the Jews therefore said to him, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Well, if God tells you it's lawful, it's lawful. <laughs> the Son of God. So it says, verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. This is the third time we've read about Jewish people, second time about Jewish people, one about the Hellenists trying to kill somebody who is a representative of God. Tried to kill him because he had done these things on a Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. Here it is, making himself equal with God. So Jesus, in this work that he did on the Sabbath, affirmed that the father has been working until now. And I think he's reflecting back from the beginning of creation. He's been working all this time up till now. And I have been working. And what he's saying is the father's doing this work right along and I'm working right alongside of him. Kind of like wisdom in Proverbs 8, the master craftsman who was with God and create in the creation from the beginning. Have you read that in, lately in the Proverbs? Masterful passage of, of uh, Scripture personifying wisdom. But he's making equal himself equal with God. Now, just to flesh that out a little bit, God did cease from work in one sense, Remember in Genesis 2.2, it says, and on the seventh day he rested. What did he rest from? He rested from his creation work. But he didn't rest from all of his other work, sustaining the universe. By him all things hold together. Or providentially working or even miraculously working in the uh, matters of individual lives of Adam and Eve and then so on, you know, down the line all the way through history directing his angelic hosts to do what he wants and uh, battling the, uh, the, the evil one and so on. But God needs no rest. And so he could continue work to work in sustaining the creation and working in the lives of the inhabitants of the creation. And so it's in that alternative sense that God the Father has continued to work right along. He doesn't need a Sabbath. In other words, God is not bound by the Sabbath like he has to cease from doing what he does. Otherwise, the creation would fall to pieces on those one day a week when the Lord took a vacation. <laughs> not going to happen. In any case, um, Jesus, since he equates that work to the work that he himself was doing both then and now, what he's saying is that he has the same job, the same strength, the same capability, etc., to work as the Father does. And the Jewish people understood exactly what he meant. 
they thought, you mean to say that you are working right alongside the Father, you're equal with Him as a co-equal partner, you're a co-worker, a co-laborer, partners in the business? Yep, that's exactly true. Amazing, though, they recognize that. Now, there's another passage that's not exactly about work, but it's about equality, and it's in John chapter 10 and verse 30. In the section there, in the Feast of Dedication, remember when it was winter? We talked about that on Sunday, uh, the Feast of Lights, the Hanukkah Feast. And Jesus walked in the temple and he said, um, you know, the works, actually there are works here, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My, you know, you don't, you don't believe the works that I'm doing. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's a mark of a sheep, a mark of a follower of Christ. They actually follow him. I give them eternal life and so on. And God, Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So what's going on here? The the Jewish leaders recognize that once again, Jesus is saying, I am equal with my Father in heaven. The Jewish leaders did not water down what Jesus said. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, today, you talk to somebody uh, about John 10.30, they'll say, oh, well, what he really means is that I and my Father share the same purpose. You know, we're one in mind with one another. No, that's not what he means. And the Jewish leaders didn't water it down to make him into another god or a lesser god or one in purpose with God but not at one with him in nature. They took the phrase as he meant it. I and my Father are one. So one, so much one that they are equal. And they thought that was blasphemy. If Jesus were not the Son of God, it would be blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy when you are what you are what Jesus is. <laughs> okay, so their response was, we can't believe that the Messiah, you can't believe you're the Messiah even though you've told us you are, even though the woman at the well in, in Samaria knew that you were the Messiah, uh, and your disciples are figuring this out as well, and so on. We don't believe that, and we don't believe that you're the Son of God. We don't believe that you're equal with God. In fact, you're a blasphemer, a slanderer, and we should kill you. Paul has changed from that to somebody who could write the following words. Speaking of Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That is Saul changed 180 degrees. He would have killed Jesus. He would have cast his vote against him. But now he's saying he is, in fact, the Son of God. He is equal with God. He is equal to the Father. So uh, this theology of Jesus as the Son of God became by Philippians old hat to Paul. This was the core of his message, very familiar theological territory for him by then. Now it's brand new to him, but he's accepted it fully. The transformation that Paul underwent was amazing to everybody who heard and saw it. That's verse 21. Uh, they couldn't believe that somebody who was the persecutor had turned into a supporter of the Christian faith. 
it was shocking the about face that he made. It's like a famous atheist today. Okay, just imagine if Richard Dawkins turned to Christ or uh, who else? Who would be another good one? Uh, Christopher, oh, Penn and Teller or Christopher Hitchens had he been alive. See, he's gone now, isn't he, Hitchens? Um, or whoever. Or Stephen Hawking, for example, yeah, if he came to the Lord, um, you know, or be like a staunch pro-choice feminist becoming a faithful Christian or a liberal Ann Arbor leader preaching the gospel, we would probably be shocked, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't believe that we could invite him into the church to speak about his newfound faith. Saul increased in strength, verse 22 and I think probably as he began to grow as we would, let's suppose that I threw Jansen to the, to the synagogues in Ann Arbor and said, hey, go preach there. Uh, you know, after the first few times, he'd, you know, come back licking his wounds. And maybe by, by the fifth or sixth time, he'd be like, I kind of know how to handle this now. You know, I can deal with it. And uh, I'm going to let him do that instead of me doing that. But no, I would love to do something like that, but he, see how he grew in strength. And what I'm saying is that just like Jansen would grow in that, you know, interaction and practice and knowledge and okay, what are they? How are they going to object? And what passages of scripture are they going to use? So he would grow in being able to handle the situation. So Saul too increased in strength. He didn't remain static, but he grew. He changed. He improved. His progress was evident to all, could we say, 1 Timothy 4.15. And so much so that he confounded the Jews which dwelt in Damascus. So after he you know, kind of got warmed up and got his strength and, and got his feet under him, his ministry was using their own scriptures against them, so to speak. They would be reduced to complete frustration because they're like, every time we say something about a text, he explains it so that it supports the Christian faith. You know, we don't even read Isaiah in 53 in the synagogue. He's telling us about Isaiah 53 and the meaning of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 16 and, you know, Daniel chapter 9. I mean, he's loading it up on us. We can't answer him. So in total frustration, what they try to do is not to, to answer the or believe. They say, we just got to get rid of this guy. We'll kill him. So the Jews plotted to kill him in verse 23. And the same thing happened again in verse number 29. He disputed against the Hellenists, the, you know, the Greek-speaking, Greek culture Jews there, but they attempted to kill him too. So, notice that his preaching was centered about Jesus Christ. So should ours. Not about social issues, not about political issues. It's about Christ. Political issues are all destined to pass away. They, like everything else, are going to burn up. And this planetary you know, destruction that is going to work at the end of the millennial kingdom when God creates the new heavens and the new earth however you think of that happening, it's going to be a total wipeout here and it's going to be a total remake of the new heavens and the new earth. And, uh, you know, Washington and Beijing and 
you know, the Kremlin are not going to exist then. Not even, not even Tel Aviv and Jerusalem like we know them today. But in any case, um, now another note on timeline. In, it says in 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now the best I can ascertain, and this takes a little bit of work to get to this point, but uh, in really like a New Testament introduction class is where you would go over this in a Bible college or seminary, but go, go over this, some of this timeline stuff. Between 922 and 923, there are many days. And apparently these are the days in which the, uh, the Apostle Paul went out into Arabia to learn about the revelation of the gospel of grace. And the many days, let me take you over to Galatians chapter 1, 17 to 18. It says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. So just know, you know, in the way the Bible writes, sometimes there'll be like an event and then some time will pass and another event and you won't really know how long between them, but sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer. Well, here it says, and, and that time can pass with no mention in the scripture. Here it says, now after many days, that could be as much as three years. So when you read it, you're like, you know, uh, warping through time here very quickly, three years just in the space of a few words. Um, so he apparently learned about the revelation of the gospel of grace, the kingdom, the church, and he learned from Christ at that time. It tells us in, in Galatians he didn't learn it through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he went back to Damascus in verse 17 of Galatians 1, it tells us. So that, that's kind of left out of the narrative here. But coming back to Damascus, uh, pe- people there try to kill him. The Jews were angry against Paul and they plotted this murder. They were able to influence the governor of Damascus to go after him. Um, and uh, try to kill him, but they weren't able to keep it a secret, and so they made a daring escape plan for the Apostle Paul. The, the enemies were watching the gates of the city. That's where you'd leave, you know, come and go, but they didn't find him coming or going out of the gates because they, they let him down through a basket, through a window in the wall in the basket, and um, the persecutor has now become persecuted. So he comes out, gets out of Damascus, comes south to uh, Jerusalem after those three years, and he stays there for 15 days. It says in Galatians 1, 18, uh, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So just over a two-week time period. But nobody believed Paul had become a disciple. Uh, he had gone off the radar for a little while, but are like, eh, do I trust this guy? Nope. And so they were, they were wise, they were discerning, uh, understandable for them not to be foolish and immediately welcome this guy into their presence because he could be a spy, he could be you know, pretending just to gain advantage. Um, and so they exercised due diligence. Um, and I note from this verse, 
this idea, we do not have to be gullible just because we're Christians. You do not have to be gullible just to be nice. Right? Don't be gullible. Be wise. So Barnabas comes along, and Barnabas, you remember, he's the son of encouragement, Acts chapter 4 tells us. And he looked at the situation, got the two sides together, and they realized they're actually one side, not two sides. So that was good. Uh, it took that man to bring this, them together. And so this afforded them an opportunity to testify of what had happened to Paul. Um, they had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and that he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Christ. And so they're introduced to Paul and uh, see how he, uh, how he operates. Now, it says that he um, was coming in and going out, so there, the visits with the apostles became more regular. There was a kind of a period of regularity there in that um, business. And so uh, he preached boldly again in the name of Christ and debated with the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews there called the Hellenists. And uh, they couldn't take his stuff, <laughs> so they tried to kill him too. Um, and it says they found out and they brought him down to Caesarea. There was another time that he went down to Caesarea, remember in Acts chapter 22, somewhere in there, where they were trying to kill him in Jerusalem and the um, Roman soldier, the centurion, found him getting beaten, put him in jail, brought him down to Caesarea by all those horsemen and spearmen um, and saved him again from the death uh, that the people wanted to give him. So it looks like Paul left for a Tarsus here around A.D. 37, so three years, three plus, four years, somewhere in there. Could be a little more, and uh, his friends got him there to get him out of harm's way. Now, from Acts 9, verse 30, Saul does not appear again until Acts eleven twenty-five, And nothing is mentioned in the Bible from the three-year mark to what Galatians calls then after 14 years. So 3 to 14, what I've called and many have called the 11 silent years, where Paul is apparently ministering in Tarsus and that area, but he's not a missionary. He's not, a, you know, he's maybe he's getting his life squared away and new faith and with his family and so on. Um, so this would be from A.D. 37 to 40. Uh, 40, what did I say 37 before? Yeah, 37 to 48 perhaps or somewhere in there. Um, not Again, not exactly sure. I think the um, Jerusalem Council happened in around 49, so it had to be a little bit before that. But in any case, one of the things that I drew from this is a, a lesson similar to what uh, Moses experienced. God sometimes takes a long time from our perspective in the preparation of his servants. And we can easily be, you know, impatient and say, I want to be, you know, done now. I don't, I don't want to go through the preparation stage, skip all the schooling, skip all the, you know, studying, skip all of that stuff because I'm, 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 I, can, I can do it now. Excuse me one second. I don't know why I'd be getting a call right now, but anyway, 
Live stream going okay, John? It's already, it's good, all right. So, um, so sometimes, again, God takes a lot of time from our perspective in the development of his servants, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It doesn't mean, though, that the servants of God are doing nothing while they're being prepared. It's not like they're just sitting there, you know, soaking in, uh, you know, reading books or something like that. Um, Many are laboring away. And in fact, some labor, and not just in preparation, but in their ministry, labor in utter obscurity with no recognition from the world or even other Christians for that matter. Their reward will only become evident where? In heaven. But Paul was there in obscurity for 11 years. We wish we could know what was happening there and all the stories that he would have to tell and all of that. But God was giving him a base of ministry experience probably and training and, and, and thinking about what he was going to be writing and things like that uh, during those very years. He took 40, God took 40 years of training Moses after he left Egypt and the years prior to that preparing Moses in all the learning of the Egyptians so that Moses would be able to write the first five books of the Bible and lead all the people and have all those skills and all those background experiences that he he needed to be able to do that. So in Acts 11, Barnabas goes to find Saul in Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. Undoubtedly, Barnabas knew where Saul was because he had brought him into the disciples in the first place and so they knew about where he was and went and found him and brought him back to Antioch. <clears throat> and then Saul and Barnabas went on their famine relief visit to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. And then I mentioned the Acts 9 council and all that. So there's a lot of things going on over the course of time. And Galatians 2 recounts this second visit to Jerusalem at which there was some controversy also about Peter and his handling of uh, his Jewish friends. So although Saul was completely changed overnight on the road to Damascus, God had quite some work to do on him in the following years, even more than a decade before he was ready to be a missionary. But ready he did become. Perhaps for you, the years in which you find yourself right now are years of preparation for something. You don't know what, for something. (laughs) Uh, We think we know what in one case here, but... uh, you know, for us, for me, I remember these years of preparation that, that I was in a seminary and sitting under Dr. Sachs's ministry and that sort of thing. And maybe you have some, some of the same and you're starting to prepare, you know, for some further ministry and Bible teaching or whatever. And um, you know what? That's good. That is really good. Um, And so, you know, we're not done when God transforms us. We are totally transformed, but we're not totally done yet. So we have a lot more to go. And um, so, but I encourage you too about that. If you're kind of young in your journey in the faith or you haven't thought about it in a little while like this, do think about it this way, that when you come to Christ, your life is transformed. It's not, not, as I've said on Sunday, an add-on accessory to uh, just you know, put Christianity and kind of plug it into one of the plugs that you have in your kitchen. You know, it, it's the whole kitchen. <laughs> it's the whole new thing. And uh, I want you to think of discipleship that way, that it's totally a different kind of thing than what you were before. So uh, hopefully a couple helpful thoughts there for you tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we close, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the work that you're doing in us 
the work that you did do in us, maybe uh, transforming us uh, in years past, or maybe it's just been recently changing us into a follower of Christ. And then the ongoing work of transformation that uh, changes us, prepares us, leads us, guides us for future ministry. And Lord, we can't always be looking to the future. We, we have ministry we can do right now. And I pray you'd help us to do that, even as we're preparing for whatever you might have for us in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.